Chapter 11 of Energy and Vibration This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter van Liest Nature's Miracles, Volume 2 Energy and Vibration by Elisha Gray Chapter 11 Sound Interference we have seen by the preceding chapters that sounds may cooperate with and reinforce each other. We have seen also that sounds are sympathetic and that bodies will vibrate in sympathy with other bodies that have the same natural rate of vibration and that they tend to help each other to prolong the sound. It is a law of tones that those which are concordant tend to prolong their time of sounding while discordant notes tend to kill each other. These facts go to prove the theory of the survival of the fittest. If two equal forces oppose each other, the result will be nil. If we could see the sound waves in the air, we would see that they were made up of a series of air condensations and rarefactions, and if the waves are those of a musical tone, the distances between the centers of the condensations will be the same. If the pitch changes, the distance between them, or wavelength, will change, but they will still be equidistant. Suppose we sound two tones from the same point of departure, or as nearly so as possible, and that both are exactly the same loudness and exactly the same pitch, which means the same number per second. If both are sounded coincidentally so that the condensations and rarefactions occupy the same space, the effect will be a loud tone, because the one tone augments the other. If we stop one of the tones, the effect will be a weaker tone of the same pitch. If we could now set them to vibrating so that one could be a half vibration ahead of the other, then the condensed part of the wave of one tone would occupy the space of the rarefied part of the other, and the result would be no sound at all, although both tuning forks, or other sounding sources, are vibrating as intensely as in the first case, where there was a coincidence of condensations and rarefactions. Thus it will be seen that sounds may help each other, or they may kill each other. Suppose that the waves are running high on the lake, and that we could have a set of inverted waves that would exactly fit in the depressions between the crests of the lake waves. The result would be smooth water. So when one set of sound waves fits into those of another, like the cogs of a wheel, the result is smooth air and consequently no sound. Musical sounds are the only ones that can be so related as to produce perfect silence from two sounds that are in perfect unison. Irregular or discordant noises are constantly interfering with each other and killing one another so that the sounds of the streets are very much subdued by the operation of this law. If it were not true, street and other noises would become unbearable. Most of us can remember, when we were children, of having a shell held to our ears so that we could hear the sea roar. If we hold almost any small cavity to the ear, a roaring sound is heard. This is due to resonance, the phenomena of which is discussed in a preceding chapter. Little ghosts of sounds that have been killed to ordinary hearing are made sensible by resonant reinforcement when a cavity is held to the ear. Anyone can try the experiment. If the cavity is adjustable, it will be noticed that the smaller the cavity, the higher the pitch of the roar. This is as one should expect, 
as we have seen that all air cavities have a fundamental that is awakened when a unisonant sound comes to it. The ghosts of sounds of all pitches are floating in the air, and those only will be reinforced, so as to become audible, as are in unison with the pitch or fundamental of the cavity, whatever it may be. Some years ago the writer constructed an apparatus that illustrated beautifully the phenomena of sound interferences. It was an electroacoustic apparatus and was constructed as follows. The receiver of the sound was simply a tuned reed, like one prong of a tuning fork, and made to vibrate by an electromagnet mounted in front of the reed. This reed was mounted finally on a resonating box of wood, the same as used for mounting tuning forks. The air cavity was of such size as to reinforce the vibrations of the reed, and so the two were in unison. The two ends of the magnet wire were connected with leading wires that ran into another room and there connected to the two poles of a battery of, say, twenty cells. At the battery were two other reeds, tuned in unison with the reed at the receiver. The transmitting reeds were kept in constant vibration by a battery and magnet with self-breaking apparatus. Each reed vibrated ten cells, or one-half the battery, so that each was using the same power. I said that the two transmitting reeds were in unison. They were not quite so. One of them would gain a vibration once in about five minutes. The vibrating reeds threw the current into vibration, and two series of electrical waves of equal force were transmitted to the receiver, and corresponded to air waves of the same pitch. When the reeds were vibrating exactly in unison, the sound at the receiver would be very loud, because the two sets of electrical waves which were transposed into sound waves at the receiver cooperated. But when one had gained half a vibration, as it did in about five minutes, there was perfect silence, because one set of electrical waves just fitted into the intervals of the other set, and produced a smooth flow of current. The facts brought out in this chapter show how beautifully the laws of nature are adapted to the service and comfort of man. Sounds that have a tendency to prolong themselves are made pleasurable to our senses, and those that are disagreeable are killed as soon as possible after they are born, by a law of their own operation. End of chapter 11